Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Good morning again, everybody. Hey, if you are new with us, again, welcome. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm the pastor here. I uh, would love to get a chance to connect with you as well as uh, our team would love to do that as well. We have so many people that lead around here and uh, they love serving, uh, get to know people. We would hope that you would become uh, friends and inevitably become family, which leads us to our uh, our series. We're talking about the table. And so if you are new, you're probably like, why do they have a table up here? Uh, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a uh, uh, just a second, but uh, I also want to welcome everybody that's worshiping with us online. If you're traveling or visiting us that way, uh, glad to be able to connect with you that way. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 today, Luke chapter 11, which has been the primary uh, narrative we've been looking at uh, over the course of this series. We've looked at Luke and we've looked at Acts. Uh, Luke is the same gospel writer that wrote both of those accounts. Uh, and so uh, he has a theme that, uh, uh, one of many themes that he introduces, and one of those is the table. And he uses that as uh, kind of a, a leverage point uh, or a fulcrum, if you will, to, to be able to kind of uh, set forth some truths about who Jesus is, uh, what God is like, and what he calls his people to be. And so we've learned a lot of different things. I would highly encourage you uh, to go back and uh, maybe listen to some of those uh, online. Uh, you can get them on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or some, somewhere like that, or even our website. That's a good place, journeyjonesboro.com. Uh, they're on there as well if you missed anything. Uh, because I think these, th- these ideas have built uh, on themselves as we've gone. And so today as we dig in, we're going to get to one more instance where Jesus finds himself at a table, which is one of Luke's most uh, uh, favorite things to do where he either gets Jesus going to a table, he's at a table, or he's coming from a, a table uh, because the table became synonymous uh, within an ancient culture in, in much the same regard as it is today uh, as not just a place where family gathers, but it also became a boundary marker. It became a place where uh, worldviews and ideas and philosophies and thoughts about life are lived out uh, in real time, in real ways, uh, that uh, religion and faith weren't just matters of a high, lofty thought. They uh, govern how we interact with one another, how we interact uh, with ourselves and with with our communities. And so Jesus found himself, like all of us, he found himself at a table. But the difference is that uh, Jesus, uh, as he so frequently did, he found himself confronting the boundaries that uh, usually identify us, and he begins to instill a new understanding, uh, a refreshing understanding, and probably one that actually got lost, uh, and because Jesus becomes the lens by which we understand how God behaves and what God is like. And so today we're going to look at one of those episodes. Uh, uh, the, the scripture reference up on the screen has been 11, 37 through 54. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're not going to get through all that today. There's not going to be time. Uh, we're going to carve out some time at the end for baptism, which is a really good thing. Um, but hopefully you'll find a journey group either today or this week, and uh, you'll be able to go a little bit deeper into this passage, discuss around it. And if you don't have one, definitely stop by the Welcome Center. Our team will be ready to help you find one. So let's dig in, though. Let's see, see what Jesus is doing at the table this week. Uh, And this is the way it begins. 
Whoa, there went. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and he went in and he reclined at the table. Uh, so here we are. We set the scene once again, and um, here's the thing. We should all be a little bit suspicious already, right? We should be a little bit like, uh-oh, something is about to go down. Something's about to happen because this is the way that Luke has always introduced Jesus in confrontation. Uh, he gets an invitation. This is much like what we got uh, earlier in the chapter, Luke chapter seven, uh, a few other places where Jesus gets invited by a Pharisee uh, to come eat with him. Uh, as he goes in, it sets the scene and, and the way that uh, Luke tells the story, it really bookends really nicely because in verse 37, it says he went in. In verse 54, it says he went out. And so this is what happens at the table. He goes in, he reclines at the table. And if you can remember, uh, we've got our own version of the table here. It didn't look like this, obviously. They didn't go to Target and get any Magnolia home stuff uh, back then. Uh, but they had that U-shaped table. And uh, frequently what would happen, just to, as a quick reminder, is when they would have a meal, uh, the host and the prominent guest would sit at the head of the table at the top of the U. Uh, and at the end of the, uh, in, in the evening, when they would finish eating, there would be often be an exchange of ideas. There would be um, a dialogue of, uh, of such. Uh, Greek symposium uh, was, a, was a manner in which they would kind of go back and forth over things. But there was always this decorum that governed how you interacted. And so you got a lot of things at play here. You've got a, a Jewish mentality, a purity uh, in some of that history. You've got this Greek symposium idea of what happens at the end of a meal. And uh, they would sit and have this dialogue and debate and different ideas. Ideas. And so there's a curiousness that the Pharisee has with Jesus. He, he wants to learn more. There's something about Jesus that's intriguing to him, some of his ideas, what he's doing. And so he brings him to the meal. And there's a, obviously this kind of social contract, if you will. There's a behavior that governs. It's like when you go over to someone, someone's house, uh, uh, what, what you wear or how you interact, whether you say please and thank you, yes ma'am, no ma'am, all those type of things, whatever your cultural uh, contracts would be, there was the same that was existing in the first century. They were just a little bit unique and different from ours. And so Jesus goes in and he reclines at the table after receiving this invitation. But what we're about to find out is Jesus confronts this social contract. He begins to use it actually, uh, again, as a fulcrum to make a point, uh, to draw everyone's eyes to the head of the table to make a point. So what's the point? Well, we're going to dig into it here in beginning in verse 38. The Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, this becomes really important to us because this idea of washing is going to be somewhat of, a, of the true north of the passage. Uh, if, if, you, if you look at this, it's going to come up over and over again, and it's going to have everything to do with what, it, what does it really mean to be pure? What does it really mean to be clean? And Jesus is going to use this. And I kind of think Jesus, this is just me uh, presupposing, all right, so this is not uh, in the Bible. This is just the way I understand it after I've kind of meditated on it and processed it. And somebody could prove me wrong. Somebody could come up and know, well, here's, a, here's evidence from this commentary or this uh, historian that shows there's something else here. But I, I think Jesus did this on purpose. 
I think Jesus was such that he understood the situation he was coming into. And this is just like Jesus. Uh, We're so uh, conscious of cultural norms and social contracts that most of the time, if somebody goes outside of those, it causes a stir. If somebody does things a different way, if somebody uh, behaves differently than is kind of uh, commonly accepted or understood, everybody raises their eyebrows. Maybe people begin to get suspicious. Conversations loom in the background. Um, uh, People make blog posts. I guess they don't do blog posts anymore. They post stuff on social media or Twitter, whatever they do. Uh, When people don't obey the cultural norms or the social contracts, things happen. And I think Jesus knew what he was walking into. And Jesus was about to make a point. And so what does he do? He comes in and he, uh, from the very get-go, what would have been typical for a a Jewish person as they entered into a Pharisee's house, you would have honored the host, um, uh, kind of their social norms. You would have done what they suggested or what they wanted. It would be like if you visited someone's house and, uh, you know, you hate spaghetti, but they put spaghetti in front of you. And your mom would say, hey, you just eat the spaghetti or at least stir it around and make it look like you did or something like that. Uh, Because we understand that there's, there's this expectation when the host does something that the guest behaves accordingly. But remember what we learned about Jesus? Jesus is the true head of the table. And what you're going to find out along with me today is that what Luke names Jesus as is something really unique in this passage. He is very precise and he's very uh, detailed and specific to call Jesus the Lord, that he is the one that is actually making the rules. He's the one that gives us the understanding of what's proper and what's improper, or in this case, what's unclean and what's clean. So what does he do? He comes in and he presses on the social contract. He comes in and rather than washing his hands for ceremonial purity, this was not for hygiene alone. This was a statement. This was a statement about who you were as a person, who you had been with, and this was a way to signify and signal to everyone where you stood. And so what does Jesus do? Something very pronounced, very demonstrative. He comes in and rather than washing his hands, he chooses not to wash his hands before the meal. And then watch what the Lord does in verse 39. The Lord said to him, to him being the Pharisee, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now I'm going to come down to my table for just a second because I think there's some things that will help us to understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying. Because I think, remember where Jesus is. Jesus is at a table, right? Uh, so being at a table, my guess is he probably would have used what was at his disposal, as he frequently did, to teach the lesson. He, it was an object lesson. Jesus loved object lessons. Um, and so whatever their container looked like, um, he, he probably picked it up. And my guess is that he probably would have done something to signify the idea of what he was saying. And and you can see it, right? Uh, Have you ever had a cup that you thought was clean, like it looked clean, and you had a beverage in it and you drank from it, and then you got to the bottom of the cup and you saw something? Has anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, and you're like, oh no, all that's in me right now, you know? That's all in me. Well, this is what Jesus essentially does. He, he comes in, doesn't wash his hands, which would have made him the one that's in the room, the only one in the room that was unclean. But what does he do? 
He challenges their understanding of what it means to be clean. Uh, and he picks up a cup. And he takes, he says, listen, this is what you guys do. You take it and you wash the outside of the cup. Now that's good. I mean, that's good. We all want an, an outside cup that's clean. But let's imagine that this cup wasn't clear for a second. You couldn't see what was inside. He says, the thing about it is that you guys have not washed the inside of the cup. You haven't actually made the cup completely clean. Now, it looks clean on the shelf up there, but when you drink it, the last thing you want is to get to the bottom of the cup and look in the cup and find out there was something there that you didn't see all along because that's what's really there. And you know what it's like, right? I mean, it's like if you find something in a, the old analogy of something in a punch bowl, I'm not gonna say it because it's kind of gross, but if you go to the punch bowl and there's something floating in the punch bowl, everything in the punch bowl is unclean, right? Everything in the cup is unclean. Why? Not because the outside wasn't clean, but because the inside was not clean. Now, what is he saying here? Because he's saying that there's something on the inside of the cup. My question is, what's on the inside of the cup? What is he seeing in the Pharisees that is actually making them unclean? Well, he tells us in the passage, right? It's right up there. He says, it's full of, you're full of greed and wickedness. So you look in the bottom of the cup. What's in the bottom of the cup? Well, I look in the cup, the crust on the bottom of the cup is greed. The goo in the corner of the cup, it's wickedness. And that's what they were harboring in their hearts. Now, now this, is, this is telling for us because sometimes it's hard to uh, get things clean. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? I, I might be the only one, but inside a cup, washing inside a cup is one of the hardest things to get clean in the world. <laughs> like, I mean, you're trying to get in there and to get into all those crevices, like that's not an easy endeavor. That takes intentionality, that takes work, it takes scrutiny. And greed is like that. Because my guess is, like, with, with most, um, most sin in your life, you know you're sinning when you do it. Now, you, you could debate me on that, but my, my, my idea is simply this, is that uh, if you're stealing, you know you're stealing. If you're committing adultery, you're, you know you're doing it, Right? There are things that you know you don't. You don't just accidentally do those things. And we know this in here, that we're all sinners, okay? We know that we've all intentionally sinned. And we know that God's forgiveness and his grace and his mercy is for all of us because we all come as needy people in need of his sacrifice. But with that, there are some sins that are a little bit more difficult to discern. How do you know if you're being greedy or not? Now, depending on who you ask, um, they might uh, put that on a, a dollar amount. Uh, you might look at someone else and say, they're just really greedy. But you look at yourself, and if you were going to evaluate yourself and be honest, how do you know if you're being greedy or not? I mean, it's really a difficult thing. Am I being greedy or am I just, am I just being secure? Am I just making good, wise financial decisions? It's, it's really hard to discern. Well, how do we know and how does Jesus get to the heart of what he's talking about here? Well, fortunately, we, this is not the only instance we have with Jesus when he's trying to look inside the cup. Uh, there's other times where Jesus mentions this very thing. 
And so what he refers us back to over and over again is that if you want to clean the inside of the cup, you're gonna have to get the greed out. But he relates greed not to just finances. He relates greed to worship. Remember this uh, famous passage. Uh, It's later in Luke chapter 16. You can see it up here. When he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. See, so what's happening here is Jesus is pushing on the cultural norms and he's, he's referring back away from like the public idea, the outside of the glass, and he's getting to the inner constitution of a person, of you and me. Now, let's be careful because we are not Jesus in the passage. Uh, probably all of us are more in the pharisaical group in the passage. And so as I'm saying this, as I'm working through this, what I would like for you to hear me um, express is not that I think I'm Jesus and trying to get on anyone or that I think you're Jesus and you've got someone to get on to. I think that Jesus, as he did then, is coming to our table. And I think what we do is we take what he was saying to them and then we begin to evaluate after understanding the situation to the best of our ability we then begin to draw correlations about what does Jesus tell us to do? And why in the world is he doing it at a table? Well, I think it's pretty telling, uh, quite honestly, because he gets to the heart of what was really at the heart of the Pharisees and what was at the heart. The heart was that they wanted money. Now, we're not told exactly why it was, but if you know a little bit about uh, the Pharisees, it was, uh, it was basically, they weren't just like really uh, religious leaders. I know we kind of minimize it to call them that, but they were, uh, they were really sincere uh, Jewish followers that be- believed that they could usher in the kingdom of God uh, through uh, obedience to the law. All right. Uh, it wasn't one of those things that we frequently say, and I'm going to kind of kind of attack a misnomer where they they thought that if you're a good person and you complete all the laws, then God will approve of you. That's not what they thought. What they thought was that God had called them out as a people, uh, redeemed them out. But if they obeyed the law, if they fulfilled the law, then they would usher in the return of the Messiah. And so what does this mean? That means that they would relate all of their obedience, not just to ritual purity, but also a political movement. And so they would tie these two things together. And so their behavior became synonymous with this idea of an institution coming in and uh, really bringing in God's reign. And, And this is important to us because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to counter their political understanding the religious understanding, and he said, I'm going to tell you how the kingdom of God is really ushered in, not through a political movement. And I want to say this on the outset too, because most of us will hear this through the lens of our our current cultural context. And so Republicans will hear it one way, Democrats will hear it another way. People will think I'm trying to make a political point. But here's the thing is all this happened a long time before anyone knew the term Democrat or knew the term Republican. Okay, so this is scripture, this uh, is Jesus, and let's see what Jesus has to say before we ever get to our current cultural context. And so if, in order to get there though, we gotta drop back. 
All right, so let's drop back. Are y'all okay with me standing down here? It's kind of weird for me, but I'm, I'm kind of comfortable. I get to lean on this. Okay, y- y'all get to sit. Now I kind of get to lean. Uh, if you look at Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, verse 40, he says, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. So it's really pretty simple if you look at that. He says, the one who made the outside of the cup also made the inside. Now that makes that's sense. That makes a lot of sense. That's just pretty logical. That's pretty simple. There's not one maker of the outside of the cup and one that makes the inside of the cup. Now, if God is our creator and he made the cup, okay, we're going to concede that God, there is a creator today, and uh, for the sake of argument, uh, and you might not be there yet, but just for the sake of argument, let's just say that there is a creator God and he created the cup. Then wouldn't it stand to reason that if the same creator created the outside and the inside, then he's concerned about how clean the outside is and how clean the inside is. So how do we clean with scrutiny and intentionality all the stuff that's in the center of the cup? Well, he told the Pharisees, he said, it's really simple. The cloth that cleans the cup is your generosity to the poor. He looked around and he said, the thing that you have to do is you're going to have to clean the inside of the cup. How are you going to do that? You're going to have to be generous to the poor. And that's basically the simple simplicity of what he says. And, and he says, if you do this, both the inside and the outside will become clean. Now, here's the cool thing about washing a cup. Um, you can clean pretty easily the outside of the cup without cleaning the inside, but it's really hard to clean the outside, I mean, the inside without cleaning the outside. Did I say that right? You know what I'm saying? Like, you can clean, you can clean the outside without ever getting the inside, but it's really hard because as you're cleaning the inside, you're actually cleaning the outside simultaneously. And so which is a better approach? Well, let's clean the inside. How do we do that? He says, be generous to the poor. Then he t- says this, and he's going to press on this. This is a pressure point for them because like you, they're probably going to say, well, I, I think I am generous. And they had reason to actually validate this. And, and this is why I can say that. Watch what Jesus says. He addresses their preconceived notion. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all their kinds of garden herbs. So basically, I've got some, since we're in the kitchen, uh, I've got some herbs up here. So here's essentially what they did. They would take their, they would take their spices and they would pour them out. And I know you can't see that, but I mean, you understand what it is, right? I mean, you understand that there's little pieces. So t- uh, a tenth, a tithe, means that they would take 10 of these things. Y'all got a minute? I'm going to take 10 of these out. And I'm going to set aside one for every 10. Now, we would say that's ridiculous. And mainly because we're American, but uh, and we would never do that. We'd find a machine to do that or something. Um, I'd like the coin counters. You know, you used to have to roll the dimes and put them in the little things, and now you just take them and dump them in a thing at the bank. Um, but that's what they would do, and, and and they actually did this. Now, why did they do this? Because in according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus twenty-seven thirty, they were instructed to do this. 
a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, there's a whole lot more in there. Leviticus is a fun book. Um, a tithe means a tenth. So anything that came from the land. Now, where do you get herbs and where do you get spices? The land. And why did God say this? Is because they didn't own the land. They were going to possess the land, but who owned the land? Who owned the land? God owned the land. And so God says, it's my land. And what you're going to do is anything that you take from the land, you're going to take a tenth of it and you're going to give it back. And this is what, the way that God was trying to help them, to instruct them to understand that they they were not the sources of anything they have. It was like, remember how we remembered today when we took communion? It was a way for them to have a constant reminder that everything was not theirs. Because here's what happens when, when we think we are the source of things. Things that we possess end up possessing us. And it begins to taint our understanding of God, ourselves. And that's why Jesus would say, you can't serve God and money at the same time. It's an act of worship. And so when we withhold things from God, there's a sense in which what we're doing is we're saying it's mine. And when we say it's mine long enough, then we act as owners rather than stewards. And so the Pharisees, let's give them some credit. The Pharisees were like, how can we best do this? How can we do this? Well, it says, I mean, they're literalist. I mean, God says a tenth, a tithe of everything. Well, I guess we're gonna have to get the spices off the rack. And I guess we're going to have to count it out. Why? Because they believed that they could usher in the Messiah, this eschatological ending to all things, the way things are supposed to be, if they would adhere to what God had told them to do. And so there's a genuineness on one level to this. They believed it all belonged to the Lord. And so they were doing this. But here's the funny thing. There's, there's an irony of this. Because if you follow along in the passage and you reveal the next part of it, he says, but... You neglect justice and the love of God. And so, you know what it's like. If you're sitting here and you're really like trying to count this stuff out, like, I mean, that's not an easy endeavor. I mean, for one, they stick to my fingers, and so that makes it really difficult. But if I'm doing this, what can I see around me? Very little. Very little. That takes so much attention that I can't even see what's going on around me. And I think Jesus at the table is doing something really ironic and interesting. He's saying, because you're so focused on this, uh, on the specificity of taking these things out, what ends up happening is he uses the other thing at his disposal. He says that inside the cup, because you're neglecting justice, and the love of God, you're doing all this. You're spending a lot of effort. You're doing a whole lot of stuff, but you're still not clean. Now, this is a warning for the Pharisees. And remember, who are we in the passage today? We're going to be pretend we're the Pharisees because we probably are most, uh, most likely that's who we are in the passage. So as Jesus turns and he continues to press on this, he suggests or he, he, 
He's, he uses this word justice. Now, uh, this word, as words do, y'all know words change meanings and, you know, they, they become different things. Uh, in recent days, the word justice in, uh, uh, in our circles has become somewhat of a lightning rod thing, which is really horrible because it's a Bible word. I mean, if you don't like the word justice, then you probably need to send an email to Jesus, not me. Okay, let me just say that. Because um, Jesus is the one that's using it. I'm just reading it. But he's pressing on this because he's saying to them, you're neglecting justice. Now, what is justice? Because there's a lot of misinformation out of there. Um, I mean, I've had over the last year, people send me books. And let me just tell you, I read a lot of books, okay? Um, I'm open to read whatever book you send me. But here's the thing is, depending on where you land on this, um, a lot of times we begin to impress meaning on one another from things. So what I'd like to do for just a second is I'm trying to like say, what, what does Jesus mean? Neglecting justice. Well, it all has to do with one Hebrew word and it's probably a Hebrew word that most of us know in here. Uh, it's the word shalom. The word shalom, um, typically when we hear, we hear the word peace, which is kind of unfortunate because when we think of peace, we're just thinking of uh, the absence of com conflict or the reconciliation of conflict. But it, for, for a Jewish mindset, it meant a whole lot more than that. Shalom was peace. It was wholeness. It was completeness. Uh, it was where everything was as it was supposed to be. Now, the easiest way I can say that is I've got a puzzle here, okay? Now, I don't know if y'all can see that. I feel like I'm in a preschool classroom. I'm going to do this right here. Um, let's just say um, that this, this painting that uh, is going to be the guide for our puzzle, this is a 1,500-piece puzzle. So this is one of those puzzles that you guys start, and about uh, two weeks in, you put back in the box. That's what this is uh, for many of you. But how many puzzle lovers do we have out there? A few of you. Yeah, y'all like this. Um, so you take the puzzle out, and you look at this. Well, this is a serene, beautiful picture, right? I mean, it's got a cottage uh, out on a tranquil uh, pond with some geese and some duck and some little ducklings and a little rowboat over there. I don't see any snakes anywhere in this, so that's good news. Um, but but it just, doesn't it just look peaceful, right? This is where somebody wants to, you want to take a vacation here, you want to live here. Well, let's just say for a second that this is... God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, it, it's picturesque. It's beautiful. Um, it's a place you want to be. Everything looks peaceful, tranquil. Uh, everybody's getting along. Uh, men and women are getting along. Uh, men, women, and God are getting along. Uh, uh, everything's going, going well. Um, it's the way it's supposed to be. But something happens because the reality that we live in is not this, is it? We don't live here. Here's where we live. That's where we live, right there. And as we live there, we live with all the pieces of this jumbled up, messed up. And it's why some of you love puzzles, and it's also why some of you hate puzzles, isn't it? Because you're like, my life is already like that. I don't know that I want to do that for leisure, right? Um, you know who you are. <laughs> But here's the reality. If this is shalom and this is reality, that means that the pieces of our world, our relationships, our governments, 
our personal relationship to ourselves and our identities, it's all in pieces, right? Now, it doesn't mean that there, there's not a possibility that things could be different. And it doesn't mean that originally it wasn't like this because y'all realize, right, that, that before they cut those into pieces, they didn't like paint each one of those, right? They painted the whole thing and then they chopped it up, right? So this is possible from the beginning, the way it was created to be. And the reason that we do puzzles is because at the end, we know that it's a possible reality that it could be put back together. And so when we look at our world, though, we're looking at just a pile of pieces, and there's a debate. There's a debate about exactly how to put this puzzle together. So if you're putting a puzzle together in, in community uh, or around the table, or you know, uh, if you put us in your kitchen table or wherever you, you do your puzzle, there might be a debate. Some people would say, well, you got to do all the border first. You got to do all your colors first. Some people are willy-nilly, you know, they just go in there. What, everybody's going to have kind of a different approach to this. It's complex. There's nobody that would say a 1,500-piece puzzle is not complex. And I don't think there would be anybody to say that the problems of shalom, the absence of shalom in our world are not complex. Some people would say, well, if we fix this problem, we're going to fix the whole thing. And logic would say that's not true. Somebody else would pick up a different piece and they would say, if we fix this, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be right. And, and logic would say that's not true. It's complex. And so what do we do with the pieces of the puzzle? Well, the word justice, uh, Tim Keller, uh, a pastor and author, he helps us out with this. He's got a book called Generous Justice, and I highly recommend it. Uh, it it's a good quick take on justice. Uh, it's a, a kind of an intro to it. But he, he really talks about two different kinds of justice in Scripture. One is what we'll call rectifying justice, uh, the Hebrew word is mishpat. Uh, another one we call primary justice, with is tatasqua. Now, rectifying justice means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Now, that's kind of like relief or, um, you know, like uh, legal matters where you put someone in, you know, go through the ringer and all that kind of stuff for behavior. And so as you go through all those type of things, that, that is one kind of justice, okay? Uh, but there's another kind of justice scripture talks about, and we call it primary justice. And this is not like relief efforts to like something that went wrong or caring for victims or something like that, which is important in one facet of it. The other facet of it is, let's get to the source of it. And let's try to figure out what it would look like to actually fix this thing, whatever the thing is, okay? Whether it's human trafficking, whether it's uh, sexual abuse, whether or not it's uh, orphan crisis, uh, I mean, you, you name it, whatever, whatever it is. Um, whatever it is, there, there, there's a way to do that. And the way to do that is not just to treat the symptoms or deal with the aftermath of something, but to actually get to the source of what it is. And this is like saying, well, if we were to do this, then that means that there wouldn't be a need for relief, right? So that, that kind of makes sense the way those things work out. Well, it's, it's a little convoluted because Scripture actually introduces us to this idea of justice early on. This is actually throughout the Old Testament. And so when you look at one, one good place you can look, I mean, there's several places I can tell you to look, but one in Leviticus chapter 19 
This is just a a quick synopsis. It says this in Luke 19, I mean, excuse me, Leviticus 19, verse 33-36. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standards in measuring length, weight, and quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights and honest epoch and honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, this isn't a greater... uh, uh, body of, uh, of a passage where God is laying out for the nation of Israel. They've come out of captivity and he's saying, this is how you're supposed to behave uh, as, as my people. And when he, when he says this, he's at, obviously he's pointing to some things that for most of us, we should go like, okay, what's he talking about here? And this is what the Bible talks about justice. It, it's primarily talking about land and poverty and victimization and oppression. Okay. And so if you look at poverty in the Bible, just poverty, one facet of this, uh, this is why it's so complex. The pieces are so complex because the Bible talks about a lot of different things that are the cause of poverty. Go on to the next slide real quick, if you will. Uh, and, and it points, like in that passage I just read, to unjust social structures. Um, you can see some of the scriptures there. You can jot them down. Legal systems that favor privilege, exploitation of the poor by those in power, unjust lending practices, loans with excessive interest, unjustly low wages, unjust distribution of resources, and all those can find reference in scripture. And some of you in the room right now, you'll look at that and go, yeah, hang out on those passages and tell everybody else in the room about them, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that maybe there's a time to have a discussion about that, but here's the thing is what I'm trying to point to is the complexity of everything that's going on, of of what it's like when shalom is gone and Jesus is at a table and he's got one group of people that think that shalom can be brought about by tithing out of this. And Jesus is saying, all that gets you is an outside of a cup that's clean. But if you look inside the cup, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to go deeper. You're going to have to look harder. You're going to have to be more intentional and to be generous to the poor so that you can clean the inside and the outside because God makes the whole thing. What do you have to do? Well, you've got to get to the cause if you're going to get to a solution. And so some of us, we have to realize that these are part of justice. The Bible talks about them. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to be aware Intent, uh, intentional about these things and we have to look at ourselves with scrutiny just as Jesus was pressing on the room that day. But that's not the whole story because the Bible also talks about possible causes of poverty in the Bible. It says this, there's laziness, there's destructive habits and then there's stealing and there's greed. And so there is a, there's an individual aspect to this as well. And we live in such a uh, dualistic society where you're either one or the other, that it's really hard to gain a balance between these things. And so sometimes within the church, the church wants to take a hard line stance one way or the other, and churches become divided over just this. But here's the thing, when it's complex like this, what do we need to do? We need to lean in and we say, what does it look like for us to do what it says in Isaiah 1:17? What does Isaiah 1:17 say? Well, this was God through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, learn to do right. That means it's not natural. Can I just say that everybody in this room, including myself, we've got some learning to do. 
If your faith is marked by an arrogance that says, I've got it figured out, I, I have arrived, and so the rest of my life, I'm just gonna get a little bit more adept, a little bit better at defending my own position, that is the end of transformation, not the beginning. And so what God wants to do is he wants us to learn to do right. He wants us to seek justice. He wants us to defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Now, last time I checked, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not an English major, but all those things, um, are they verbs? Is that what they are? Defend, is that a verb? Take up, plead, yeah. And that's not just Old Testament. Remember Jesus' brother James, he said it, 127, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And if you think about it, what he's really essentially saying is that this is gonna take some effort. This is, this is not going to be about style. This is gonna be about substance. This is gonna take a lot of work. It's going to be something that's a learned trait. And we as a church are learning it. We as individuals are learning it. And we have to be receptive to the fact that we've got some learning to do. Um, I have some learning to do. You have some learning to do. That that is what spiritual growth is about. Now, if you take that idea about shalom and about the hard work that it takes, then what that essentially tells us is what Jesus is doing is he's not just getting on to them for the sake of uh, a talking point on a nighttime uh, news talk show. Okay, Jesus is not just making a point to make a point. He's not just trying to be right for right's sake. He's actually trying to help the people in the room with the opportunity to see it through the hermeneutic of Jesus. That's why for us, any kind of interpretation, when we look at scripture, what do we do? We say it has to include Jesus. Because much like the Pharisees, left without Jesus, our interpretation, uh, our perspective will get, will get skewed, it'll get tainted, it'll be incorrect. And so what do we do? We say, what does Jesus say? How did Jesus behave? What did Jesus introduce? And that becomes the hermeneutic or that becomes the interpretive key to help us to understand what scripture's actually saying. Remember what Jesus said at Luke 24, he said that he talked to the disciples that were going along the road to Emmaus and he says, he, he, he informed them that all the stuff they've been learning about their whole life was actually about him. Everything in scripture that they had grown up in the Old Testament was actually about him. They didn't know that until that day. And then that changed the way they saw everything. And so how does Jesus become the interpretive key for us? Well, look what he finishes up with Luke 11:42. We're almost done, we're gonna baptize some folks. He says, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a 10th of your mint and rue and all the kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So what does he say? He didn't say, don't tithe. What did they do when they tithed? When they tithed, they would give money to the temple. And what did they do at the temple? Well, the money in the temple was taken to actually help uh, pay for the sacrifices and the whole sacrificial system and all the upkeep of the temple. And the other thing that happened uh, with it was uh, that they would give it to the poor. So there was a sense in which every time they gave a tenth, they would give it away. And that's kind of the way, to some degree, we function here. When you give here, it does help make everything happen. I mean, it, it, it pays salaries. It does pay lot bills. It, it, it pays insurance, you know. It helps us to do things in the community, but it also helps us to do ministry to people around the world, really practical things. So it does, it kind of, it does both those things, and, and neither one of those is bad. They're both good and necessary uh, in order for things to happen. Um, 
And so what does Jesus do? He strikes a balance. He says, it's not about, remember, cleaning one side. It's about making sure that you don't just clean one side and think you cleaned everything. To clean the whole thing. Now, he finishes it out. We're not going to finish the whole passage, but I just want to focus on the Pharisees because he's going to shift in the second part of the passage, and he's going to talk about uh, the experts of the law, which is kind of a different group that was present as well. But finish it out this way. This is what he says to them. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. He says, you're like an unmarked grave. You're like a cup that has all this yucky stuff inside of it. And there's a way to facilitate a change. There's a way for you to actually change. But this is insulting. This is not easy. This is not pretty. Um, The church then, uh, Jesus at the table was not pretty. It was not, it was awkward and it was hard. The reason I know that is because if you read verse 45 alone, which what the experts of the law said, Uh, This is what it says in verse 45. If you go to the next slide real quick. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. Yeah. (laughs) How many of us would say that Jesus has the right to insult us? Yeah. Now, the thing one of my professors taught me in in college, um, he, he, he he would famously say this or repetitively say it. He would say, listen, the gospel is offensive enough. You don't have to be. And that's true. Jesus is offensive, but Jesus is offensive on purpose. He's not trying to just make a point. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to create a different group of people that understand what they've been given. They've received the grace. And then that's what he said right back uh, to the people in the Old Testament. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I've delivered you. And now we sit here right now through the person of Jesus and we say, God, you've delivered us. How now shall we live? How shall we behave? Who should we care about? And, and, and we've kind of isolated three basic things. Uh, I'm going to go to that last slide real quick and then we're going to baptize. Yeah, we talk about go further around here and we talk about this in the basics class a little bit, but we, we talked about a culture proclamation last week where we're, we're actually beginning conversations around the table. You hear us talk about having a seat at the table. Um, what that means is that, uh, and if you see the logo, it kind of even is reflective of that, the new logo, uh, because it's not just about a proclamation where we just talk more and, you know, uh, like a commercial advertisement or a, a, a network marketing scheme. Uh, it's, it's having a tell me more approach. It's a conversation. It means that with our community, with the people that are around us, it's not about a megaphone, but it's about a dialogue. When we get into a dialogue, we want to talk about where people are. We want to listen more so that we can begin to form a relationship with people so that we can speak life and love and hope into people's lives. And we also want to grow as a culture of justice. That means that we want to make wrong things right. We want to be a force for good. Um, in, in our world. Um, there should be something uh, that burdens all of us that if, if, if Journey was to go away tomorrow, like if this building was not here and, and people said, well, I didn't even know that they were gone. Like if the city didn't recognize we were gone, that would be a problem. And there might be, you can, might, can make a case for that um, in many cases right now. 
we should be such a presence within our community and the world that there should be things that are different. Now, that's not just about programs at the church. That's about the way you live your life. Many of you are on the front lines of this, whether you're teaching school or you're in a business or whatever you're doing, the, the church is people. And so it's not just about, oh, we gotta start a new program. It's about the culture of who we are. And then we all, you hear us talk about a culture of generosity. We want to become generous people. We want to address the, the lack of shalom in our world. And we want to have a different approach to usher in the kingdom of God. We don't want to just uh, be over here counting out spices, but we want to live different kinds of lives. And so I don't know what that says to you. I, I don't uh, pretend to know exactly where that hits you, but I do know that from a church perspective, it means listening to the spirit. It means hearing from him and evaluating where we are and letting Jesus say some things that are perhaps a little insulting to us so that we can actually be transformed into what he desires for us as his people. Let me pray for us and then we're going to uh, get ready for some baptisms. Father, we thank you so much today for your sacrifice. We thank you for your love, Lord, that you um, poured out your life to the full. Lord, help us uh, not just to uh, clean the outside of the cup. Help us to look inwardly. Help us to look to the posture of our heart toward things and ourselves and help us not to see people as commodities or people as distractions or obstacles. Um, help us, Lord, to see the image of God in every single person, regardless of where they find themselves uh, economically, with ethnicity, with gender, God, um, whether they're young, they're unborn, or they're old. God, we pray that you would help us to value the right things and help us to learn. We wanna defend, we want to take up, and we want to live for you. And so Lord, help us as we're transformed into your image around the table. In Jesus' name, amen.